This is the day we actually remember an event. For some, it's the celebration of a religious tradition that has very little connection with real life. For others, it's the greatest moment in history, the implications of which are vast and life-changing. For some, it doesn't really matter if the event happened at all. The implications there are not great. It's just a nice idea. Life. For others, all that matters is the event. That's everything. So I'm interested in considering that event from the perspective of those that were closest to it. And this event, of course, is the resurrection of Christ. The Bible asserts repeatedly and without ambiguity that Jesus Christ was dead, killed by the Roman authorities, executed, and rose from the dead days later, as predicted, in a physical body. He physically rose from the dead. For many of those who knew Jesus, uh, whatever impact his life made on them during his normal days, his resurrection is what changed them forever. The apostles, actually if you read the New Testament, they don't act much like apostles until the resurrection happens. They're a pretty motley crew. His personal brothers, the, the boys he raised, was raised with, they didn't believe in him at all until after the resurrection. The apostle Paul was transformed from an enemy of Christianity to, against the church to become its most astute theologian missionary because of his encounter with the risen Christ. So there's something world changing about the faith of these men. Their faith was grounded on a rock and the rock was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The truth of the resurrection was what drove them. It was their motive. It was also their message. Well, we studied through the book of Acts this last year and every single message from the apostles and there are many recorded in that book, their sermons, the focus was on the resurrection. More than anything, that's the one theme that dominated all of their preaching. <coughs> so the apostolic preaching always centers on the resurrection. So sometimes it seems like like fuzzy thinking on the resurrection is, a, is sort of a modern thing. I think we think that, you know, like modern people don't really believe in those kind of things. It's the scientific skeptical age that places this event in the realm of poetic truth or something like that or a beautiful story or something like that. Not history, certainly, because that can't happen. Well, in the Apostles' day, there, there was a similar tendency. That's not a modern thing. There's a similar tendency in the ancient world based on their own preconceptions, their own experience, to think the resurrection is something other than historically true. So that's not a new thing. We find that thinking in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we don't have time this morning to go through a full exposition of a very long chapter. This is the resurrection chapter. That's what it's all about. But I do want to point out just a couple of little features in here. So first, let's talk about the facts themselves from an eyewitness testimony. So this morning at 6.30, I heard that you guys read through 1 Corinthians <laughs> chapter 15, 1 through 7, even though I was sleeping at the time. But um, 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest Christian epistles. Nobody disagrees. You know, there's a lot of scholars in the world and there are believing scholars like faithful Christians that are true academics and there's also a lot of unbelievers who are true academics and scholars and they study history. Obviously, they, they wait what they believe out of all those things based on their preconceptions in some ways, but nobody disagrees. None of the scholars disagree of the Bible that 1 Corinthians was written any later than in the 
within 20 or 25 years after the resurrection happened. I've been the pastor of this church longer than that and I actually remember showing up here. So it's, it's not that hard to, to remember. So don't forget that. First Corinthians, everybody agrees, is one of the earliest New Testament books that was written by the Apostle Paul within 25 years or less okay, of the events actually happening. So let's just read the facts as he presents them here. 15.1 Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and also in which you stand. Verse 2 By which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, that's his actual name, uh, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's his brother, and to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Many of the scholars that study the New Testament agree that Paul in this section is quoting a creed. You know Christianity has a lot of creeds that were written down over the years. Many centuries were written centuries later. But this is like an early, early, early creed of the Christian church. The statement of belief that was really easy to memorize and rehearse over and over again. So, um, and the creed is basically a list of names, witnesses of the resurrection. And Paul includes himself in the list. He's probably not part of the creed. He's including himself on the list last. So the witness list is really interesting here because it's not a legend. You know, people that study legends know that legends take time to develop and over time they kind of build and there's no time. There's no time. 20 years, that, you don't get legendary status that quickly. Plus when there's people around that were there, you don't get legendary status either because they can say, well that didn't happen or that didn't happen. But the witness list names eyewitnesses who are alive when Paul is writing this. And, and that means that the claims are actually verifiable. So more than 500 witnesses, he says, many of whom, verse 6 says, remain until now. Some have died, but most of them are still around. That was the good news that the apostles preached and that was the news that thousands and thousands of first century Christians, Jews and pagans accepted often at a very high cost to their personal safety and lives. Yet even then some, some could not get a grip on the resurrection as a real event even at that time, even in the ancient world. So Paul asks a really good question if you look down at verse 12. He says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So I won't get into this too much, but there's a, a, a doctrinal heresy or a false belief system within the Corinthian church saying pe people don't really raise from the dead. That doesn't happen. And they weren't really thinking about Jesus. They were thinking about other people. But Paul's saying, hey, if it doesn't happen, it didn't happen. You know? <laughs> so if people aren't raised from the dead, then Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. So that's a really important problem they've got there, that thing they're bringing up there. 
Why would anyone identify himself or herself as a Christian and yet not believe the fact of the resurrection? After all, if the resurrection is central to the faith of Christians, then what could lead people to claim a resurrectionless Christianity? What would lead somebody to even say that or believe that? Or to think that the historical reality of it doesn't matter? What would lead them to that conclusion? And I think there's all kinds of reasons people would think that way then and now as well. You know, in some broad sense, um, some people just say, well, you know, Christianity is a good thing. It's a good thing. Church people are generally friendly and generally it's a reliable place to make friends and look for a wife or something like that. In, in modern times, Christianity helps one feel good because we live in a therapeutic culture. So we just want to feel good and if these beliefs make you feel good then that's a good thing and that's all right. It helps you cope with stress. It provides some sort of guidance and good morals and a connectedness you know that we're lacking in modern times. Bowling leagues have gone out so go to church. Those, those kind of things you know. Christianity is good for you. It's like nutrition or going to the gym. It's just a good thing. Somebody actually said, quote, many seekers entering churches perceive Christianity as something to add to their life, like herbal tea or anti-lock breaking (laughs) (laughs) or more fiber and less fat. (laughs) Christianity without the miraculous still makes them feel good. So you don't need a resurrection to feel good. It's just kind of a neat thing and it's a good place to be. Now in the first century, this was true as well. Christianity certainly had more going for it than most of the pagan alternatives. I mean if you wanted an orgy you could go to a pagan temple but if you wanted an upright good life and uh, moral principles in your life you might go to go to the church. Christians were generally morally upright and kind and generous and that alone is attractive to many people in a wicked world, right? But even then it was possible to keep <coughs> the outer form and discard the heart of what Christianity is all about. But that kind of a Christianity, honoring the form but discarding the heart, that always leads to disaster. So Paul says in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. So he's taking their thesis and he's saying, well if that's true then Christ hasn't been raised. And if your faith, if, I'm sorry, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith is also vain. Now vanity is not just looking in your mirror and loving yourself. That's the word vain means empty. So people that do that are doing something that's empty. That's how that got connected to that. But vain means that there's, it's a, there's nothing to it at all. It's an empty thing. So if Christ has not been raised, he says, then our preaching is vain. We've wasted our lives getting beat up for the gospel. And your faith is vain. It's empty. Worthless. Without a risen Christ, good feelings and warm fuzzies are, in reality, they're empty. They're useless. So verse 17 tells us a secret, if you skip down to there. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. No resurrection, no forgiveness. No forgiveness, no salvation. Now it starts to sound more important. This declaration by Paul that if Christ is not raised we are still in our sins, that's not going to disturb people that are drawn to Christianity by human concerns, the therapeutic concerns, friendship, community, moral values, things like that. Those, uh, for those kind of people, Christianity is just an expression of religious feelings and, and that's not uncommon. But for those who come to Christ because they believe the gospel, 
that Christ died for our sins and he was raised on the third day and that our salvation is tied to him actually paying the penalty of our sins then Paul's statement is just a shocking wake up call. We'd better take the resurrection seriously. That's what he's meaning to do here. So don't let go of Easter as an event in real history he says. If you do that you're actually lost. Christ, Christ came to solve our sin problem. That's why he came. To reconcile wicked people like me to a holy God. And for that, for salvation, he has to conquer death and the power of sin to kill us, to kill our souls. Now the ancient Corinthians had other reasons for finding the resurrection distasteful. So our reasons, our, our modern therapeutic reasons are one way, just uh, um, we'll get more into what modern people might think. But in the ancient world, look, Corinth was a Greek city and Greek philosophy was the dominant thing in their culture. Uh, Greek philosophy clustered around the idea, a lot of different differences in Greek philosophy, but it clustered around the idea basically that spirit is good, eternal, and to be sought, and the body is material, and corrupted, and evil, and to be escaped. Escape your body. So the idea of looking forward to a resurrected body was a horror to the Greek philosophical mind. (coughs) They denied the facts of the resurrection to fit a philosophy. So in the Corinthian church there was a belief that the resurrection is this new life we have and Jesus has nothing to do with the resurrection of your body someday. So that was the problem Paul was dealing with. And we do the same thing. Our philosophy in modern times is, well, it's an odd blend, right? I mean, people are all over the map philosophically in our culture. There's not sort of a dominant philosophy. But scientism is a, is a big part that sort of dominates the university system. Nothing is real that is not measurable. Now, I use the word scientism because science is a wonderful thing. But scientism says that it's everything, right? It's not a wonderful thing. It's everything. It explains everything. And if it doesn't explain it yet, it will someday. That's what they say. So um, scientism is the exaltation of science to the only way to know truth. That's what scientism is. And that's a big part of our culture. If you can't show a study or put it in a test tube or measure it, it's not real. And then there's relativism, which is that, you know, everybody's opinion is equally true about spiritual things because we can't really know and, you know, your truth and my truth. And as soon as somebody starts saying your truth and my truth, (laughs) the ancient philosopher in me starts going, and I am ancient, (laughs) starts going, wait a minute, what happened to logic? The gift of the Greeks. So scientism, scientism and relativism actually should be like, totally mutually exclusive if you think about it right but they're not so modern people hold both those ideas in the same brain because that's that's how we are we're not we're not really consistent in the way we think so they're conflicting ideas but we hold them together and they both reject the resurrection as unnecessary because your truth, my truth, I think it may have happened, you don't care if it happened, it doesn't matter, it's all good and the scientism would say of course it didn't happen, that doesn't happen We've looked all over the place. We haven't found a resurrection yet. <laughs> I know there's some stories, but we haven't seen it happen. It's not demonstrable. So it's not science and uh, this philosophy, because it's sort of anti-science in a way, and it's too narrow at the same time. So that's what 
that's what they would say. Uh, we're not science and we're too narrow in our thinking. So as in the first century there are these uh, people in the church today who dismiss as unimportant the resurrection. So they don't really care if it's true or not. Just like in the Corinthian time but for a different reason. That's just a big mistake. And for one thing it misrepresents the truth which is always important. If you, once you give up truth we're lost. I mean civilization is lost and that's kind of where we are moving as a culture very rapidly. But far worse is attacking the truth that denies the gospel. You know attacking the truth of the gospel is a really big deal. That Jesus actually did accomplish something to reconcile us to God. That my sins actually can be forgiven. If my sins can't be forgiven I'm in a bad place. A really bad place. I'm, I'm going to go to a bad place but I mean worse than that. I mean not worse than that but just as bad as that even now I'm in a bad place because if I can't be forgiven I'm, I'm not a good person. I've blown it. And what's going to happen to me? So the apostle is brutally honest. Look at verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be <coughs> pitied. So the words in this life only include all these forms of quasi-Christian churchianity stuff that does not give room for the gospel. The therapeutic church doesn't care about the gospel, it doesn't preach the gospel, it doesn't give you the gospel, it doesn't acknowledge the gospel. I was raised in a church like that so I understand that. Do you think the resurrection isn't very important? Uh, kind of a take it or leave it thing, a nice story, but uh, what difference does it really make? Well then you are in a pitiable condition according to the apostle here if that's what you believe. Why? Why is that pitiable? Because if you miss the resurrection you've missed the gospel, the good news, you miss what Christ did. And all the wondrous news of the Bible, all that God has actually done and what's being celebrated in scripture from beginning to end, you don't have it. You've, you've thrown it away, you've cast it aside, you missed it. So the resurrection is actually confronting us with the whole gospel, the actual truth of what God is doing to redeem human beings. The resurrection is God's seal of approval of authenticity on the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and what it accomplished. How do we know if he died for our sins? If he just died? I mean, how do we know? The resurrection is the key. It's because God raised him. So the bodily historical resurrection it validates everything else about Jesus. It validates Jesus words when he said the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what he said. And if he didn't rise from the dead there's no validation for that. But if he did there's a huge validation for that. It validates the tears and the sweat that poured out in the garden of Gethsemane asking his father to let the cup, we just sang about the cup, to let the cup pass from him, the cup of God's wrath that he was take, going to take and drink to himself. God's wrath poured out on the sins of the world. He drank that cup. But it doesn't mean anything if he didn't raise from the dead. It's not validated. The resurrection validates his words on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Spoken as the one bearing the sin of the world. The wrath of God. The resurrection val validates the words on the cross when Jesus said it is finished. What is finished? I'm all done being up here now. That's not it. He's done bearing our sin on the cross. It's finished. He's done the work he was sent to do. 
the acceptance of his sacrifice as a full payment for the sin of humanity is validated by the resurrection. The resurrection says all of it's true. And so Paul can say in Romans chapter 1 verse 5 that Jesus is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He's declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. And as Paul preached to those in Athens in Acts chapter 17 verse 30, God is now declaring to men that all everyone, all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection is proof of the future judgment and the need for our repentance. So without a resurrection you can say maybe that well maybe sin isn't that big of a deal. That God is a saving Santa Claus instead of a holy righteous being. A jolly fellow who gives presents to nice people. Maybe he's that. But with the resurrection you see a God who is holy and cannot overlook sin. He cannot let sin go unpunished. Man's sin must bear the weight of divine wrath or God would not be good. He would not be holy. And so that wrath will come to us or it will be transferred to the one who drank it, who took it on himself on the cross. The resurrection demands that we take God seriously, that we take his word seriously, that when he asks us to make changes we make them. We know that God hates sin or he wouldn't be a good God and he targets sin with his wrath. So let me tell you something, if you ever hear somebody say it doesn't really matter if Jesus rose bodily from the dead then I can guarantee you, I can promise you, I can probably prove it to you with other things that person said, that that person denies also the necessity of the cross that he doesn't think sin is really a big deal, that he believes that some things in the Bible that are called sins aren't really sins, that niceness is more important than righteousness, and that the Bible isn't really God's word. I'll bet all of those things follow with a person that says Jesus didn't really rise bodily. It's kind of a package. Haven't found too many exceptions to that. That's why Paul calls such a view of the resurrection pitiable It's pitiable. So the gospel is that we've all grossly offended a holy God and we deserve to be cast away from his presence forever. But God out of this what the Bible literally calls a mega love, this incredible love that he has, a love beyond our knowledge, he became a man and lived a sinless spotless life and offered that life as a sacrifice to pay for our sins by bearing the burden on himself satisfying justice in his own body no one can accuse God of being unjust because he does it that way because God's bearing the pain himself so you can't say he's unjust what are you going to say well you're just letting people go what do you mean I'm letting people just go come with me to the cross and see what my son did I'm not unjust. I took it. I took the penalty. So when we accept Jesus as our substitute by faith, we are restored to God and that changes us. Well, how do we know it's true? 
Well, there's the empty tomb, there's the multiple eyewitnesses, the changed lives of the disciples, and that's a historical question. What changed those men? You've got to answer that. You know, I was a history major, so I get cause and effect in history. What changed those men? And if you ask them, the resurrection of Jesus. That's a huge, that's actual evidence. It's not scientific evidence because you can't put it in a test tube. It's historical evidence. It's legal type evidence. They went to their deaths affirming that Jesus rose from the dead. So I don't know about you, but I would rather be redeemed by God's love and transformed by his grace than to be pitied above all men (laughs) and forsake the resurrection of Christ. I do not hope in Christ in this life only, but I believe that what he accomplished will hold me forever, for eternity. That's what he meant to accomplish for us. Not because I deserve it, but because his love found a way to redeem me. Well, as long as we're sitting here in 1 Corinthians 15, let's look at the end of the chapter and I'll just kind of wrap it up with the last verses here. These are the concluding words. Let's start at verse 50. Read the rest of it later today if you wish. It's all good stuff. Verse 50, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's my comfort. I hope you find the place where that's yours too. It's found in the bodily, real, this real world resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's, that's what we believe in. That's, that's, our, that's our trust. That's our rock. So stay on it. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the clarity with which you not only tell us what happened, but how strong the apostles are in terms of its validity, its authenticity. It not only transformed them, but they insist that that's the basis of everything else. And we accept that. We stake our lives on it. It's not just a good thing, it's everything. It's salvation. It's eternal life with you forever. It's your free grace offered to unworthy people. It's the foundation of your forgiveness. So we thank you so much for us celebrating that today on Easter morning. And we glory in the risen Savior in whose name we pray, amen.